Let's turn in the Old Testament to Psalm 32, which will be our Old Testament reading. And then once again to Matthew chapter 5. I mean chapter 6. We'll find our New Testament reading and our text. So if you turn to Psalm Psalm 32 and put your finger there and then also to Matthew chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I, I will instruct you. And teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding. Which must be curbed with bit and bridle. Or will not stay near to you. Many are are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And then our New Testament reading is found in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 5 down through verse 16. Our text will actually be um, verse 13 for our sermon. The word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they receive their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you to be able to sit and hear your word read and the assembly, knowing that simply the reading and the hearing of your word is itself a means of grace, profoundly powerful one, that your, your spirit works to illumine our hearts and our minds as we hear it read. Lord, plant it deeply in us that it would bear fruit in our lives. Now, Lord, we come again to the preaching of your word which you have ordained as the primary means by which you bring sinners to yourself and also as a means to edify your people that you have instituted that the preaching of your word would take place within the corporate assembly that you call men, that you gift men in the preaching of your word. They are set apart by the laying on of hands to this end, even though they have feet of clay and they have the same need for redemption as those who hear them preach. Father, your servant stands here before you, have been called to this purpose, and yet recognizing my weakness and frailty and my inability to fulfill this call and this responsibility apart from the aid and the strength that you provide by your Holy Spirit and a holy unction and anointing. Father, I rest and trust that that provision is here, that your people may be glorified and edified. Father, let that unction fall upon the ears of your people as they hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Lord willing, today and tonight we're coming to an end of this study in the Lord's Prayer. This is the sixth and final petition that we have this morning. And this evening, we're going to take up the doxology that we're accustomed to praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. You may have noticed uh, week after week when I come and I read the text, you know, where is for thine is the, the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. I'll explain that tonight and why it's not in many modern translations, but why it's in the authorized version, the New King James Version, and others. And I'm going to preach the doxology tonight as we come to the end of this particular uh, study. Uh, but this morning we're focusing on the sixth and final uh, petition as it comes to us. And there's a close relationship between the sixth and the fifth that has gone before it. So let's remember the fifth petition in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Asking God to forgive us when we sin. But you see the text that we have now. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, praying not only forgive me when I sin, but Lord, keep me from sinning again. Keep me from sinning again. 
At the end of the sermon, I'm going to stop and ask a question to you in regard to the connection between these two petitions as they come to us. But the first one, I mean, the, the, the first part of this text, and lead us not into temptation. I don't know about you, but when I hear that text, there is another verse in the Bible, another passage of the Bible that comes into my head, and I wonder, how do I reconcile what Jesus is teaching to pray here with this other passage? Maybe you know, maybe you don't, maybe that verse doesn't come to your mind, or that passage doesn't come to mind, but it does to me, it's found in James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Now, let me remind you of something very important. All apparent contradictions in Scripture are apparent. (laughs) They're not real. The Holy Spirit inspired every jot and tittle of the 66 canonical books. He is the primary author. He inspired men to write, but he is the primary author and he does not lie. And so the first rule of hermeneutics, or how do you interpret the Bible, is Scripture interprets Scripture. Why? Because its message is one message. It's not going to contradict. And so when you hear one passage, you're reading one passage, and then something springs to mind and says, but how do I reconcile that with this other passage that I remember? This is a good thing. Because what it does is it causes you to go to that other passage and look at it more carefully, look at the passages before you, and see how it is that these passages are reconciled. And they are not in contradiction to each other. And there, there are things that we learn by studying the Bible that way. But if you come to the conclusion, well, I prefer what this passage says rather than that passage, then you've not done it correctly because they are not in contradiction to each other. You don't pit one against another and pick one over another. But how might they be reconciled? And typically when you look at the second reading or third or fourth, when you look carefully, you'll find, oh, I didn't quite understand what this one meant, and now I do. And then it's more clarified. But look at verse 12 of James chapter 1, where James begins by saying, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now note the word there is trial. For when he has stood the test, note the word there is test, he will receive the crown of life which God promised to those who love him. And now to the part that at first reading we might say, how do we reconcile this with what Jesus is teaching us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And then he explains how temptation actually arises. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, here he's saying that, that the temptation, the temptation may come from outside of you, as we will see. But it's because of your sin and your fallen nature. It's because of sin that is within you that then entertains that temptation and you fall into sin. 
But note, there's a distinction here between testing and tempting. But James is emphatic. God cannot be tempted by evil. He is utterly righteous. Neither does God ever tempt anyone to do evil. Now, do you see what I mean by this head-scratching situation where James says, God does not tempt anyone ever to the petition which says, lead us not into temptation. If God doesn't tempt anyone, then why would God lead us into temptation? Why would we even have to pray this petition if God tempts no man? Does James make Jesus' petition moot? Of course, the answer to that is no, of course not. Jesus isn't going to teach us to pray something that's not important to pray. We need to recognize that the temptation doesn't come from God, but he has his purposes. Another passage comes to mind. If you think back just a couple of chapters in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, look at how chapter 4 begins. Then Jesus was led, listen carefully, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You hear that? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted (coughs) by the devil. Who does the tempting? The devil. Who leads him into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil? The Holy Spirit does. You see, God has his purposes. His purposes are always benevolent towards his people. Always. The devil has his purposes. His purposes are always malicious. They're always malicious. But the devil does not have full sway and full sovereignty. No, he too is under the control of God. When the devil tempted the Lord Jesus Christ, he meant the Lord Jesus Christ harm. When the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, he meant it for good for the Lord Jesus Christ, but also for his ministry and for his mission. The Lord Jesus had to be tempted in order to fulfill his ministry. And he had to defeat that temptation which we know, in fact, that he did. Now, application to us briefly, then I want to come back to this that we have before us in Matthew chapter 4. Sometimes the Lord leads our paths in such a way that it ends in temptation. Sometimes that happens, just like with Jesus. Sometimes it happens with us. The Lord directs our paths. We're walking on that path We come under temptation, temptation from the devil himself. God has benevolent purposes for that. But that purpose is to test us. What does testing do? Testing causes you to grow. I've often in my teaching remarked to the students, it's okay if you miss something on the exam because that's what you're going to remember. When you miss something on the exam, when you make a mistake on the exam, and then when you learn what the answer is, that's the one that's really drilled into your head. But also, we grow 
We grow in the Lord when the temptation comes and when we run to Jesus, we cling to him. When he gives us the strength to say no, there's advance and growth in our godliness. Now, Jesus' temptation is far more significant than our experience. It's important in terms of redemptive history. All kinds of parallels. And I'm not going to work through all of this. I'm going to tell you about a resource that can help you with some of this. We need to recognize Jesus is the second Adam or the last Adam. You have the first Adam. The first Adam was what? Tempted by the devil. The devil under the guise of the serpent. You say, no, no, no. Eve was. No, Adam was. Eve was deceived. Adam was there. Adam did not protect his wife. It's important to recognize that. The Bible always emphasizes Adam's sin. We sinned in Adam. We didn't sin in Eve. We sinned in Adam as our federal head. The serpent approached the woman in the garden, her husband who was there with her. The serpent beguiled her. She broke covenant with God. She took and she ate. She gave it to her husband with her. He ate and they fell into sin. Adam, when tested, broke covenant with God. And therefore sin and misery came upon him and upon his posterity, upon all of us. But there's a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. The same devil... This time unmasked as the serpent came to Jesus in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and his weakened condition physically. The same devil came to tempt the second Adam and the second Adam defeated him in each of the three temptations with the word of God. It's important to recognize this for our redemption. Where the first Adam failed, and we fell in him. Where he failed to keep covenant. We failed to keep covenant in him. The second Adam kept covenant. And now we are in the second Adam. And that's our justification before God. But also, when you see these parallels, there's the parallel between Israel and Jesus. Between Israel and Jesus. Israel was in the wilderness. Israel was tested in the wilderness. The Lord Jesus is driven into the wilderness. The Lord Jesus is tested in the wilderness. What happened to Israel when she was tested in the wilderness? Well, like Adam, she fell and she broke covenant with God. Not just the first generation, but the second generation as well. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the second Israel, if you'd have it. Jesus is the true Israel of God. Israel was the Son of God. Israel failed. The Lord Jesus Christ, the true Israel, is the Son of God. He kept covenant. He defeated Satan in the wilderness. And if you look carefully, and I'll give you a resource to help you do that, because I don't have time to walk through it all here this morning. 
The three temptations that come to Jesus are the same three testings that come to Israel, both in the first generation and the second generation. And whereas Israel failed and failed, the Lord Jesus Christ did not fail, but resisted the devil. Well, the devil ultimately had to flee from his presence. And then he begins his messianic ministry. That resource is actually a sermon preached by Dr. Michael Morales. You've heard me mention Dr. Morales before, the biblical theology professor at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. A few years back, when we were celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation at the Greenville Conference, Spring Conference that year, the different messages, the keynote messages were on the five solas. Dr. Morales preached one on Sola Dea Gloria. You can go to Sermon Audio, type in Michael Morales, find Sola Dea Gloria. What he does is he walks through the parallels there between Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and the testings that occurred of the people of God in the wilderness. And he makes those connections for you. And how Israel failed, but the true Israel did not fail. Therefore, a righteousness to impute to us and our justification and our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> There's some rich things to be seen in seeing these parallels, these connections, and see how the Lord Jesus Christ is the second Adam, is the last Adam, is the true Israel, and how his faithfulness leads to to our salvation. <clears throat> but the point here is that it's the Spirit who leads him into the wilderness into the path of temptation in order that he be tested because he had to pass probation as well. Just as Adam had a period of probation and a time of testing and failed, so the Lord Jesus Christ had his probation, his testing. He did not fail. But he defeated Satan there in the wilderness. So, all of that to say this, the Lord doesn't tempt us. But the Lord sometimes leads us in paths that lead to our temptation. From his hand, it's a testing to prove our faith or to strengthen our faith and our growth when the time of testing comes to us. So, we have a resolution. There's not a conflict between Matthew's gospel and and what James is teaching, but they, they beautifully comport with one another when you understand what it is that Satan does, but what God's purposes are in our testing. There's another passage that comes to mind in terms of, of, of temptation, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to begin with verse 11. But what Paul has been doing here is he's been using Israel's struggles and failures. And then he makes this comment about these things being recorded for, for us. These things happened as an example to us in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the first lesson that we learn from the failure of the Israelites. 
you can fall too. Take heed. Anyone who thinks they can stand, take heed, lest you fall. As soon as in your life you come to a situation and say, well, I can handle this. I'm mature enough in Christ. I can handle this. Be careful. You're already slipping. You've stepped on the banana peel as soon as you said, I can handle this. And you're about to fall. Take heed. If you think, well, I can handle this. You, you can't. Not apart from the strength that we have in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> Let's continue to read what we see here, though, because it's important. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. This is very, very important. One of the devil's one of the devil's devices that he uses again and again and again is to come and whisper in your ear. Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. <laughs> Nobody else has ever had these sets of circumstances. And to whisper in your ear, you're not strong enough. Go ahead and do it. The devil loves to make us think that nobody else has the kind of intense pressure and temptation that I have. Therefore, to excuse ourselves by mitigating circumstances when we fall. Remember, many years ago, we had a man in one of our mission works who, who was struggling. He was struggling with, with particular sin. Um, and he was, it was to the point of self-loathing. Um, and he renounced the gospel. He renounced Jesus Christ. And, and, and this was the, the attitude. Nobody, nobody has ever struggled the way I've struggled. Then he went through his life and all these terrible things that happened to him in his youth that, uh, that made him into the person that he is and the struggle that he has. He's pled with God to help him and God hasn't helped him. And he said, God hates me. That's just what he declared. Uh, and he renounced the gospel and ultimately was excommunicated. Because of it. And, and nothing we could do, nothing we could say, he, bringing this text to bear, he just didn't believe it was true. Now, my temptation is not common to man. It's too heavy. The temptation that everybody else has is common to man, but not me. It's too heavy. God must hate me. God could change me, but he won't change me. I still struggle with the same temptation. So he, I mean, he declared, he says, God hates me. Was excommunicated. He just could not get past this. No, every temptation <laughs> that you have is common to man. That doesn't mean your temptation is the same as my temptation. There are all kinds of different areas where we have our own weaknesses in terms of temptation. But whatever your temptations are, they're common to man. They're not extraordinary temptations that other people don't have. They, they are there. Now the good news is, is five years later, after this man was excommunicated, he contacts the session. The Lord had brought him to repentance. 
and he came to the session. He didn't make excuses of that. He said, I was a beast. I was a beast before God. I was a beast before you. He says, the Lord has broken my heart and I want to be restored. You talk about a day of rejoicing when five years later, and they, he and his wife had moved away, made the two-hour trip up to where the church was when he was restored fully to membership. And now they've transferred their membership to a solid church where they are living and he's walking with Christ. There's good news. Oftentimes on the other side, me and my little faith doubted it. It was so dire in that situation. Five years later, five years later, Lord did this work in him. This is something that we need to be mindful of and careful of. Let's continue reading the text of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. This is your ability because you are united with Christ. Because the Spirit of God indwells you. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the promise of God. Every single time that you are tempted, every single time, there is the way of escape. All you've got to do is look for it and find it and find the door. The Lord makes provision. The Lord is there. You can say no. You don't have to say yes. It's the devil who tells you you cannot say no. Because God has given you the strength. Sadly, oftentimes we don't look for the way. Sadly, oftentimes we are too easily tripped up. Instead of looking to God. And typically that way of escape is just looking to Jesus and say... I need you, Lord Jesus, and you've got the way of escape. (laughs) The Lord floods your soul with the desire to obey God and not not to sin. This is a promise. It's a promise that we need to recognize and understand. Okay, let's go back then to the prayer because there's a second half to, 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 to the petition. Lead us not into temptation, Even though we know that sometimes God in his purposes does. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the way the ESV translates it. That's also the way the King James translation translates it. Um, The New King James translates it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You may have another translation that translates it that way, evil one. In in the Greek, you you just have the adjective. Uh, And so, is it the evil thing, that is evil in general? Or is it the evil one, that is the personal devil himself? Um, it, It could be either, in some sense. It could be evil in general. But who lies beneath evil in general? But Satan... Himself. And so I actually prefer the translation evil one here. Especially when you recognize that two chapters back, you have the Lord Jesus Christ being driven by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And who is the devil? He's the evil one. 
but deliver us from the evil one. From the devil himself who comes against you. You might say, I'm no match for the devil. He was created an archangel of God. A glorious creature of might and strength. Yes, he's fallen. And he's utterly wicked now. But he is still. I'm no match for the devil. Well, that's true. You're not. Jesus is. Jesus has already bruised his head. Jesus has already bruised his head. And you are in Christ. And Christ is in you. And he who's in the world is no match for he who's within you. And you need to recognize that. If Satan were to suddenly appear here in some visible form, I'm sure our first impulse would be fear because of his greatness. But if you look behind him and see the risen Lord Jesus Christ (laughs) who's bruised his head, he is not to be feared. Resist him. He'll flee from you, the Bible says. Because you're strong? No. Because he who is in you is strong. Because your champion is stronger and who has, has already defeated him. It's Paul who tells us that we wrestle not with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers. The Christian life is a spiritual battle. And we war. We war against spiritual forces in high places. We wrestle in the picture that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 6 when he tells us about the whole arm of God. He tells us to stand and to stand firm is of hand-to-hand combat with spiritual forces. That's the Christian life. We may not recognize that and we may not see that, but that's the case. It is. And every time you're tempted, these spiritual forces are behind that temptation. What are you going to do? You have everything you need. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God. He's given you the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand within that evil day. That day of testing, that day of trial, that day when the enemy comes against you, you have the whole armor of God. Put it on. Put it on. We could go and do a whole sermon on the whole armor of God. Actually, we could do a whole series of sermons on the whole armor of God. In essence, when you look at them and you summarize them, they're the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the benefits that we have because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That are ours. That in the evil day we may stand. Yes, sometimes when God leads us in this wicked fallen world, as God is leading us, we come. The enemy comes against us and tempts us. God is testing us. He's trying our faith in this. Put on the whole armor of God. 
that you may be able to stand in that evil day. And then there's one other passage I want to turn to back in 1 John, which we look to for our assurance of pardon. Just the next chapter, actually the latter part of the, of the chapter, there's an extraordinary little interlude that, that's almost in verse form. It's almost like it's a, a hymn that's stuck here uh, in, in, in the text, beginning with verse 12. These are exhortations to the people where John is exhorting the people um, in the church. And this is what he says. I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you children because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now, if you think about John's epistle, the purpose of 1 John is to give you assurance that you're in Christ Jesus. It's the letter of assurance. It's why he wrote it. Just like his gospel is intended to bring you to Christ. He wrote it that you might believe, and by believing in him that you might be saved. Well, then he writes 1 John to those who believe in him that you might know that you're saved. That's the purpose of 1 John. And in this, he gives these exhortations to these three different groups of people within the church. Now, I don't think that these are to be taken literally. What I mean by that is, I don't think he's only addressing little children. In other words, the first verse here is to Micah and nobody else that's in the room. Nor do I think fathers is exclusively to those of us who have born children who are fathers. Uh, nor that young men are simply the younger men within the congregation. But he's talking primarily under these pictures, these three pictures, of spiritual maturity. There are those in our midst that are babes in Christ. There are children. There are those in our midst who are more seasoned, that are more mature in the faith. They're the fathers. And then he's talking to most everybody else. Those are in the middle. They're not babes in Christ any longer, but not yet have they matured to where they are your really seasoned saints. Yet they're strong and they're virile and they're, they're excited about the things of God. In other words, I don't think the ladies are left out in this. I think there are mature women among us who are characterized by what he says here about fathers. And I think there are young women that are among us that are characterized by what he says about young men in the text. So I think he's talking more about spiritual maturity than, than just children and young men and old men. So no one is left out. He's talking about spiritual maturity. Now, I'm going to focus upon the third, that big category that most people are in somewhere in the middle between babes in Christ and being exceedingly mature in Christ. Look again at what he says to them. 
I'm writing to young men because you have overcome the evil one. That's in the first refrain. In the last refrain, he expands upon it. I write to you, young men, because you're strong. This is what he's saying to the young men. Because you're strong. The word of God abides in you. And that's why you're strong. You're strong. The word of God lives in you. It's why you're strong. And because you have overcome the evil one. The evil one. You've overcome the devil. Now, we overcome because Christ has overcome and we are in him. But make no mistake about it. Because we are in Christ Jesus, we have overcome the evil one. He cannot defeat you. He's already lost. He cannot defeat you. He's already lost. So when you are tempted by the devil, what should you do? Bringing together the First John passage and the Ephesians 6 passage where we wrestle not with flesh and blood but with principalities and powers. What's the, what's the text teaching you to do when the enemy comes against you? It's teaching you to pin him to the mat. That's what it's teaching you to do. You say, but I'm not strong enough. He's not in my weight class. <laughs> I'm in the 135 weight class. He's in the 230 pound weight class. There's no way I can pin him to the mat. No, you can't. Not by yourself. But you're not by yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ dwells in you. He's already defeated him. He's already bruised his head in the cross and in the resurrection. And he indwells you. As Luther says, one little word shall That's the word of God. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's defeated the enemy. The Bible says resist him and he will flee from you. Why? Because he is under the authority of God and he cannot go beyond that authority. And when you stand in the Lord Jesus Christ and when you resist, he must flee. It's sort of like... When when there's a person that's standing there, there's a bully that's coming against them, and the bully's ready to hit the little kid, and suddenly the bully just uh, starts stuttering and turns and runs away. Why? Because the little kid's big brother has walked up behind him. Understand? The Lord Jesus is with you. So pin him to the mat. Pin him to the mat. Walk in obedience to the Lord. I'm going to come back to what I said at the beginning. Between these two petitions. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We pray that every day. How many times a day do you say, Lord, forgive me? Because you know you've sinned. Every Sunday in church, 
at least the Sundays I'm here and I did the liturgy. We have a reading of the law. We have a prayer of confession where we ask the Lord to forgive us. We have an assurance of pardon that assurances us that he has forgiven us. But we do it every week again and again and again and again. Father, forgive me. How often do you pray? Lord, I don't want to sin anymore. Lead me not into temptation. I don't even want there to be the opportunity where I might fall and disappoint you because of what you've done for me. Even though knowing that there's sometimes he will lead you in that path and temptation will follow. But the desire is, I don't want to sin anymore. Not just forgive me because I've sinned, but I don't want to sin anymore. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from the evil one. I want to walk in faithfulness to you. Yes, our desire for that sanctified life is strong. Is our desire for the mercy of God and forgiving our sins. You see, when it is that we find ourselves struggling and fighting, when have you resisted temptation to the point of tears? How easily we succumb. Why? Because we know the fifth petition is there. That is presuming upon God's grace. When we love Christ, our, our love is for Him and His law and His righteousness. Not a love for sin. Pin Him to the mat. Look for the way of opportunity that God has given to you. It is there. Typically, just run to Jesus. It's there. Desire to live godly in Christ Jesus as much as you desire your sins to be forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your word. Father, we acknowledge that oftentimes we do not resist, certainly not to the place of tears. That we do not look for the way that you have provided for us every time. Sometimes we don't even recognize who it is that is tempting us. Nor do we remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is already one. And you've given us the strength and the power to walk in obedience to you. Lord, we know the strength is not in us, but in you in us. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.